Hi everyone, this is Dyslexic Design Thinking, the bigger picture with amazing dyslexics. I'm your host, Gil Gershoni. This episode is about science and academic research. Our guests include a surgeon, a behavioral scientist, and a stem cell biologist. I hope you enjoy. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, James. I love, I love your uh, your garbs there. So tell us where you are, what you're doing. I mean, one word. What is dyslexia to you? I wanted to wear a hat for you, Gil. So I, <laughs> so today, today I'm in my hospital. I'm I'm at Imperial College in London, and I've just been operating literally this afternoon. So that's why I'm dressed in my surgical scrubs. They're not very, they're not very beautiful, are they? They're a bit dull. Maybe we could do better. Uh, and I'm a very proud uh, surgical dyslexic, I guess, and I'm a clinical scientist. Um, the word that I would use to describe dyslexia would be disruptive. And I think disruptive, it can have a negative connotation, but I don't really mean it in a negative way. I think, I think it was definitely disruptive in a negative way to me when I was a kid and I was learning, and we can talk about my experience of that, and I'm sure everyone on the call will have similar experiences, but I, I really mean it in a positive way. It's a it's a different way of shaking up um, a classroom, an industry, a market by thinking really differently and doing things really differently. And I think dyslexics have um, disruption in abundance. They, they think in a slightly different way. And having that um, diversity of thought is critical uh, for the success uh, in, in any industry, it doesn't matter what you do, whether it's creative industry or art, science, whatever. So for me, uh, disruption, I think, really describes it, describes it best. Perfect. I love it. I would love to hear more about how do you do that in the, in your world and uh, in surgery, but uh, we'll come back to that. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm good, thanks. Yeah. I'm just thinking... Um, I'm in respiratory sciences in at Imperial also, um, and James, you need to get in touch with our um, consultants, etc., because they had their scrubs made over <laughs> last year by the Royal Opera House. Mm. Wow! Yeah, we That's did. Amazing. We actually during during COVID, we also we also had some made by Burberry. So I've got one pair especially, and oh, also yeah. by Harrods. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did they, they Sorry? Did, did they use the Burberry fabric? The no, no. Oh. <laughs> that, would have been, that would have been awesome. But they didn't, sadly. But no, we were super lucky. And and actually, you know, the creative industries and the the you know the clothing brands were just amazing. They they literally clothed us at the height of the pandemic. That's awesome. That's amazing. Really special. Mm. And and Sarah, what's uh, one word would you use to describe uh, your dyslexia? I think it's innovation. I think that's yeah, being innovative in in whatever you decide to do. You can't help yourself, um, which is sort of you know can be a good thing. <laughs> make us more tends to make more work for you because you come up with the ideas and then people say, okay, well you've got to make it happen now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Hi, Nicole. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about uh, what is dyslexia to you in one word? This is the hardest task I've been given in a long time, Gil. I, it's so hard to come up with one word, but I'm going to really, really, I think I have to settle with interconnectedness. Ooh. Interconnectedness, because I think a lot of dyslexics like myself excel at making connections that are extremely obvious to us that may be really disparate thoughts for many other people. And that helps with the application of science. It helps bringing together whole systems instead of looking at systems uh, discreetly. It helps to synthesize information and ultimately apply it, which is, isn't that what we want to do with science? So mm -hmm. I would say interconnectedness in all capital letters. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so James, how did you transform from a kid who was told that you can never go into medical school to a surgeon, a senior lecturer, and with a PhD? What was the path you took to get here? I mean, for a lot of us as, dyslexic young dyslexic or you know beyond 
it's such a it's such a distance to go from where we are today to where you are. Tell us a little bit about how how you got there. So so the first thing I want to say is that uh, I think it's Christiane Van Yezendun. I hope I pronounced her right. She said that you 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 sewed scrubs for the NHS last year. So thank you. You're amazing. <laughs> we were so grateful for all of your efforts. So so the answer to your question, Gil, is it probably also summed up in one word which would be persistence <laughs> a lot of a lot of persistence um so i think my experience of school was very common of people that are dyslexic um my brain just just yeah. worked in a different way and i couldn't i couldn't excel in the rigid education environment that i was in i'm a naturally pretty good artist i can paint really really well and I did I had this really diverse set of A levels where I was doing R A level and I was doing chemistry and biology, and and um, and that was kind of unusual and people thought that was weird, uh, but it, I didn't mind. I enjoyed it, so I kept going. And I was told when I came to do my A levels that I really should focus on the creative arts and that I should go and go and do art. So I got a place at art college, um, but I it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And it's not that I love art and I love the creative world, but I just wanted to be a doctor for, for reasons that I still don't fully understand, but that's just what I really wanted to do. So I gave it my best shot and um, I got one offer from one medical school, uh, which is St. Mary's Hospital in, in London. And the reason I think I got an offer from them was because they put a lot of emphasis on the person. They understood that medicine is, is a science, but it's also an art. And actually it's, it's based on understanding the human condition and being able to communicate and interact with people and they wanted a diverse set of people in their organization and it was amazing i got this place and i couldn't believe it and all i had to do was get i think a b in chemistry i had to get a b in chemistry right and i hated chemistry it was so hard and um i got a c and i didn't get into medical school and i failed and i was really sad about it and I went home and I had to think about what I wanted to do. And then I had a chat with my parents and they said to me, they said, you know, how badly do you want this? And I said, it, I want it, I want it. I can't imagine me doing anything else. And I really want to try again. So they said, okay. And I was lucky enough to have the support of my parents. So I went back and I had another go at my A-level. And this was probably the most important event in my professional life. Because um, when I did my A-level again, for the first time in my life, aged 18, I spent time with a teacher in a one-to-one -one setting, and she taught me how to learn. Hmm. And she taught me also how to pass an exam. I didn't know those two things. No one had taught me. And in that six months, my life was transformed, and I redid my chemistry A-level, and I got an A. Wow. And it was amazing. I didn't think it was possible. Like I just didn't think I was capable of it. So anyway, and, and then St. Mary's let me go to medical school. And then every day at medical school was like a holiday camp because I just felt so lucky to be there. And I was living my dream and I was with these amazing people. And it was just, I just loved every day of medical school. And it was hard, but that experience of learning to do my A-level equipped me to, I was able to scale that skill set and to learn at the pace and rate that I needed to survive at medical school. And I got through it. And I got through it and then I kind of was so, again, happy to be a doctor. I hadn't really thought about my career. And then like all good things in life, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Mm -hmm. And I met someone who said, hey, you should do a PhD. And I was like, dude, I can't do a PhD. Like I'm not, my brain is not right for a PhD. There's no way. And he said, no, I think you, you should do it. And then when I did my PhD, I had my second epiphany, if you like because all I had to do all day was read. I had to do so much reading. And it was only then, age about 30, that I began to think about what dyslexia was, how my mind worked, how I processed information. And um, I then be, I, be, I became able to take advantage of it. And I suddenly, my career just took off, like in a way that I had never thought was possible. And I've never looked back since then. And I found this little niche in my world where I exist, where I am able to, you know, use my dyslexia to my advantage and do the thing I, I love. So I feel very privileged and, and lucky to be able to do that. But it's it's taken a lot of <laughs> a lot of rejection, a lot of failure, and a lot of persistence. 
and an open mind to learn from that failure. And it's taken people. I've been very, very lucky. I've had people in my life who've supported me and who've, who've helped me when things didn't go well. And I owe them a significant amount. Yeah. Do you, I was going to say, do you think it's um, it made a massive difference when you changed your perspective on it? Did you think, did that, yeah. you know, you, you had the confidence from being taught in a way that you could learn. And then by looking at, at it as a strength rather than a, a weakness, so I honestly didn't understand that until I was 30 years old, yeah. which might seem impossibly old to many people on this call, but it, I literally had to get into the end of my postgraduate education to understand that. Because science, like um, you're, it's, you know, you're taught a scientific methodology, a scientific process. You have a hypothesis, you have you know, a series of experiments that are designed in a certain way, designed to answer that question. And, and actually that, that method is quite rigid and it's rigid for a reason actually, but but I, I just didn't understand that I could break the rules and I could do it differently. And when I did my PhD, I realized actually no one knows what they're talking about. <laughs> and, um, and you can break the rules. And as soon as you start, and that's why I said the word disruption. And when I started to break the rules, I started to do things that were different. And then you realize that actually you, you, you have a unique contribution to make to science it's just not the way that i thought it was going to be and don't get me wrong like i'm still disadvantaged because of my dyslexia there's no question about it like there are things that i just can't do that my non-dyslexic friends and colleagues can do just much better than me now i just pick my battles much more effectively i just understand what i can do well and what i can't do well and to come back to the interconnectedness theme which is brilliant by the way uh my my you know my one of my strengths is that i've learned to speak a lot of languages not not literal languages like i speak a little bit of a poco italiano but very uh. very little right but, but what i mean is is that i'm very well i think i'm quite good i hope i am i'm quite good at under i can speak science i can speak doctor i can speak lots of different languages and dialects of science and I can speak bioinformatics, I can speak metabolomics, I can do genomics, I can speak, um, you know, uh, about biophysics, or I can speak, you know, chemistry. I, my PhD was in chemistry. Uh -huh. Yeah. Anyway, so so the trick, the trick was to, the, the trick is to uh, is to bring people together, right? Because science is a tremendous team sport, and and it's exactly that what I do. It's it's exactly being at the middle of that little network of people and keeping the whole thing spinning. I think dyslexics are really good at that. Mm. Wow. Um, can I just say, James, you are an incredible communicator, just very quickly, because you were the only amazing dyslexic in the book that got um, three double-page spreads. Yes. Because <laughs> all your interview was very hard to edit because yeah. everything you said was golden and you brought us to tears it was incredible you. you are a very very talented man yeah. and i love your instagram account as well <laughs> You're very sweet. Well, I mean, there's so much love in the room because I think you guys are all amazing too. And I feel really humbled to to be part of this really important project. And, you know, my, so my son is super dyslexic, right? And it, and it's, it, th this project is so important for him. Uh, it's really, really valuable for, uh, for our dyslexic kids to understand that actually that they are not disadvantaged. Actually, they are an incredibly important uh, uh, part of our of our society, and they have so much to contribute in amazing ways. Absolutely, hundred percent. And I love the fact that you're also an artist. I mean, that is just <laughs> another language, right? Different lenses, different ways to choose yeah. where to apply the different languages in a different circumstance. It, it does make us with some effort. I mean, but it does make us some really good communicators because we have to find other ways to sort of you know, transfer the insights and the, and the knowledge. You mentioned earlier about how you learn how to learn and how to take exams. Any tips for folks out there that you think might be kind of uh, uh, helpful when they when they are facing learning and exams? Yeah, so so my first tip is just don't be frightened of an exam. Like the, the first thing to do is just is to de-stress um, the whole event. I think, you know, when you're dyslexic, it, it can just be such a stressful physical event and the first thing is just to tell yourself it's just a test and it, it doesn't matter you're not being judged by it no one's judging by it so 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 relax 
the, the second thing is is that well i have a process so so i i haven't learned something so my brain is a tremendous liar it lies to me constantly and one of the greatest lies it tells me is that if i've read something i've learned it right and i'll read a bunch of text and i'll read it i'll think oh it's in my brain i know it now and it isn't so i only know something if i can explain it to somebody else Mm. So I have a thing. So I will, I will, I, I'm quite visual. So when I'm trying to learn something, I will draw a picture of what I'm trying to learn because that's how I learn. And then I make myself explain it to someone else. And they'll ask me a question and then I won't be able to answer it. And I have to go back and learn it again. And then my third, so, so draw pictures, t explain it to other people. And then my third tip would be find a learning buddy and learn with someone. So I learn much better when I'm in a group of people together. So I, I, I learn a lot from my peers and, and because quite often they explain things to me in a way that the book doesn't or the, the professor doesn't, or you know they have a different viewpoint on it. And I need all of those different perspectives sometimes to make a picture in my head that I can make sense of. So when mm -hmm. I've had major exams, like you know for big postgraduate exams into surgery, I, I try and form a little revision group and I try and do as much talking and sharing of information in that group to try and learn. Because I find when I talk about something, it goes into my head much better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know that uh, some of the, as artists, as scientists may be the same, but like really moving it, moving the lessons from the mind to the physical, to the tangible, to, mm -hmm. you know, drawing it. And even sometimes at our agency, we print everything off the computer and then we just put it on the wall so we can actually feel it and see it and humanize it. Mm -hmm. and, and then you kind of embodying the lesson in such more, in such a depth way, you know, uh, really understanding the, the meaning in a much more visceral way. Um, great pointers, great tips. You know, you also talked about, you know, uh, having some advocates and having support. And I think that's a really important part. I know I had uh, a lot of support from my family Nicole, who made a difference in your life in terms of your dyslexia? Who was some of the uh, uh, folks, parents, support community that sort of really helped you and guide you? So much like James, I didn't find out I was dyslexia until after my first part of graduate school, before my doctorate. And along the way, even before I knew I was dyslexic, I had teachers who told me, well, first of all, in high school, I was told I couldn't go to college, that I just didn't have what it took to go to college. And so I went to a community college and it was one of those teachers in a science class, in a statistics class, who said, you know, your knowledge and problem solving really doesn't match your test taking. I, I'm wondering if there's something going on with your reading, but dyslexia never came up. I said, oh yeah, reading is not my forte. Reading is hard, I love it, but it takes forever and I, I just don't learn that way. And I ended up, he made me the teaching assistant for the class because my knowledge in that area was so valuable to him and I could communicate it to others. So that was one of the first times I ever had someone that I admired recognize that I had good problem solving skills, that I was intelligent enough to even be communicating it to the other students in the class who were doing well on tests but couldn't apply it. So that was one of the very first mentors or people who really, really helped me. And I think I'm just really blessed that I have had those people along the way, including my doctoral advisor. I really wanted to get my doctorate in special education. And when I was talking to him on the phone, I said, I'm going to be honest with you, my my graduate scores on my entrance exams for graduate school aren't that great, but by then my, same reason, same story as James, by then I had figured out what I needed to do to get good grades. And he said to me, don't worry about it, neither are mine. I would love to have you in this program. So those types of people are, I think, and this speaks to one of the questions in the chat about resilience. Mm -hmm. um, those kinds of people in our lives as dyslexia, are what we know in science are protective factors, right? Because you can have multiple risks as a dyslexic individual, but the impact of a powerful, positive adult in one's life to help you articulate your strengths and your gifts is invaluable. And I was just really blessed to have those people along the way.
And then by the time I figured out I was dyslexic, which is a separate story, I went, oh my gosh, no wonder school was so painful. It was painful. I felt like it was a life sentence in prison that I would never get out of. And then um, again, much like James, once I got into my field of expertise, I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And I enjoyed it all the time. Reading was always painful and it still is. But um, and my daughter is dyslexic, very much. She's a gifted photographer, wants to go to medical school, always struggling. Can you think I could get through medical school? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's a wonderful and a different time for people. I think every generation of dyslexics has different role models and different experiences. And um, I'm grateful that we have people from all different generations that can tell their story and we can yeah. learn from each other stories it's exciting and it's so important yeah yeah talking of which Sarah you've talked about dyslexia being the secret to your success how do you harness your dyslexia as a scientist okay um I think three there are three things it's about the creativity which in science is often sort of um termed as innovation or inventiveness it's about that seeing disparate links, linking disparate ideas and concepts. So pretty much what was um, talked about earlier. I think that that is really, really important. Um, and then the the big picture, being able to see, being able to see the big picture, as opposed to science is really about the minutiae, and you get you know down to things on a molecular level, and people sometimes get locked, get sort of stuck in that minutiae. Um, and I think as a, you know, for me, one of my big strengths is be able to stand back from that and see, really look at the big picture and see the links between all the sciences. So a lot of my um, projects are uh, interdisciplinary projects. And that's because the, the you know, the, the sort of questions we might be asking may be more complex. So, for example, one of our projects we were looking at um, blast injuries. So these are the sort of injuries people get as a result of IA, IEDs um, and they're unique to blast injuries. So one such type of injury is something called heterotopic ossification, which basically is a response to somebody getting their leg blown off, which doesn't normally happen if you happen if you have your leg just amputated for a reason. Um, but if you have your leg blown off, what happens is that within six months of that, you develop all these roots. So you develop um, from the, the stump and start growing huge amounts of bone, but it's not in the form of a bone. It just like looks like roots of a tree and it's very painful because it comes out of the skin and stuff. So wow. how do you understand that, that thing? And, um, you know, I have expertise in stem cells and inflammation um, and bone marrow. Those are my sort of areas of specific expertise. So I understand how bone forms and how stem cells. And one of the things about bone formation is that it's triggered by mechanical stimuli. So um, that's why they always get you up and walking when you've had a bone injury, you know, the more, and why kids grow, they need to sort of jump around. The more they jump around and walk and move, their bones will grow because there's a mechanical stimulation of bone. And so we sort of then, you know, the, the way your mind thinks, well, this has got to be do something to do with the stem cells in the bone and this sort of, you know, this completely non-physiological mechanical stimulation. And so we set about on a project and we got um, engineers and physicists involved. How do we take a stem cell and subject it to the sort of mechanical um, pressures that it would have if you were blowing it up like you would with an IED? And my immediate thought was, this is a ridiculous project you will simply blow all the cells up you know but actually when you talk to the physicists and this is again the key thing about that communication because people always say to me oh you speak you know in really plain english when you explain your science and i said well that's the way i speak and probably that's 
has a lot to do with my dyslexia. You know, it's not flowery, it's not sort of long-winded or descriptive. And so I can very easily communicate with physicists about stem cell science and they can then communicate with me about their physics and I can understand their physics in that way. And what you realise actually when you blow things up is that you you exerting pressure inwards on things. You're actually compressing cells. You're not blowing them up. And that is why when you have a, if you have an explosion in the middle of a street of houses, you initially, the, the explosion goes out, but then what follows is a huge vacuum and because of the explosion. And that's why all the glass from the windows oh, end up in the street and not inside the houses. So yeah. it's sort of a counterintuitive thing. Anyway, so this is the thing I love about science is that you learn all this cool stuff every day and yeah. i get bored very quickly as a as a i think that's definitely to do with the neurodiversity oh, I get, oh am i still here i get really bored as a scientist so i unlike most scientists that spend their whole life in one specific area I just jumped from one area to another. So halfway through my career, and it was actually when I was on maternity leave and, you know, um, I shouldn't say getting bored, but, you know, doing all that. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought, I'm going to get, into, you know, I started reading about stem cells and I thought, this, this is what I want to go into next. And people were like, you can't just jump. But I said, well, I can apply those principles and actually buy... Yeah applying principles that I've, you know, things that I've looked at in other areas of science to stem cells. I look at stem cells in a very different way. And actually my, the theory that I have for regenerative medicine is completely opposite to what everybody else wants to do. And at the moment, nobody has, nobody sort of has recognized that this is going to be the way. <laughs> but yeah. you have to have had those ideas and I think for me one of the things is I, I don't mind taking risks I don't mind failing I was mm. never somebody you know I never thought I would you know someone from my school friends said god I never imagined you as a professor and I'm like no neither did I, <laughs> I you know serious imposter syndrome um, but yeah I've never taken myself that seriously mm. and so I'm quite happy to fail and come up with you know strange or do sort of you know really left field science to yeah. sort of take things to the edge because i have to otherwise i get bored and the other yeah. thing with the science and the art i love that interplay so i'm a creative i do a lot of sewing and make my own clothes and things like that so but i like the the interplay and i like the the fact the first sort of project that i did with a real scientist mm -hmm. where we developed a, a tooth palace which i can tell you about at some other point but anyway we developed this amazing tooth palace and it was just really interesting to see the difference in the process of how you work as a scientist and it's really interesting, I think, at the moment, you know, with the young people, with what's going on in the world, with what's happened with the sort of, you know, the backlash from the World Cup, um, the World Euro Cup <laughs> recently. Um, yeah, people have different attitudes about it. it is about bringing your authentic self to work. It's about bringing your whole self to work. And as a scientist in particular, in our fields, um, we've been it's very much if you don't do that you know when i was pregnant i used to walk around with a with a file in front of me so, so people didn't you know catch on and wouldn't you know make uh, you know derogatory marks or whatever um so yeah things are changing dramatically and artists tend to bring their whole selves to work it becomes part of their art whatever the project they're involved in them, their experiences, who they spoke to in, you know, the local supermarket, everything gets incorporated into that project, which is totally the opposite to science, mm. because you have to be much more sort of distant from it. Anyway, I will yeah. stop. <laughs> I mean, um, it, is, 
that was so loaded with so much amazing things. I mean, first and foremost, just the way you think, you can see for everybody out there how the dyslexia mind thinks, you know, because uh, the, I mean, I'm with you. Failing is, you know, is part of the process. So being embracing that and understanding that is how you succeed by trying and learning and adjusting and evolving is a key, absolutely key. Uh, and then also I love the idea that dyslexic tend to get bored, but it's not because we're 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 boring. It's because we move our mind moves so fast that we're trying to find these other connections. We leap over the letters in order to find new pathways of ideas. You might go artistic, but it's really thinking in a nonlinear way, which often artists do because they mirror back a lot more than the linear uh, familiarity. But as scientists and the researcher, I can only imagine that bringing that world together only allows you to be even more innovative, more creative, and more seeing outside the box to find uh, new ways to solve all sorts of different uh, You often problems. come up with a lot of resistance because mm -hmm. I think other thing that I tend to do is make a huge leap yes. and other people scientists generally it's very incremental you know and they're very you know they do things in a very sort of systematic way whereas I tend to make a big leap and I'll do that experiment and if that experiment doesn't work then I'm not going to bother with all that in between stuff <laughs> I mean it's like who cares <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally relate to what Sarah's saying right now. That is, I think that is such, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I think students with dyslexia experience that a lot in school, where the teachers want them to show all of their work. And they're going, holy smokes, that, I didn't get there by doing the incremental steps. I just saw it and got there. And it's really it's a different way i really value what you just said it's so it's so common but it's a very very um it's a very real experience and i think the other thing you said that i really appreciate sarah is that coming to work with the entire being you know your whole person you you come to work not like i'm going to put in my science cap today it's like it is everything about you, your passion, your interest, how you think, how you operate in your day-to-day -day life. And I think that's what I know to be true of many individuals with dyslexia. They are all in all the time. That's just yeah. what they think. And it's wonderful. Oh, James, can good. I just pop in, James, because you said in our book, you said there's one line, you said, I don't think like a scientist or a doctor. Do you remember yeah, saying that? Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's true. I don't. I, I do. I definitely have imposter syndrome, and um, I, you know, I think many dyslexics are actually probably at some level quite traumatized by their early educational career, right? So mm -hmm. I feel like I don't. I still, even though I've got a PhD and I'm at a top ten world leading university, and I go around the world lecturing on these topics, I still don't really have a lot of what I would describe as academic confidence, because I still feel because of what happened to me when I was younger, that I'm not even sure that I really deserve to be here is the truth of it. So I don't, I know that's not true. And objectively, I've got here, I know it's not true. But that's sometimes how I feel. And so actually, I think one of the things that you have to have is, it, it's hard to develop that confidence and for people to 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 trust well to trust it's hard to trust yourself actually and and what i said to gil when we were warming up for the session that every time i do one of these things it's like therapy for me because i'm literally mm -hmm. hearing experiences mm -hmm. of people you're like oh my god that mm -hmm. happened to me and it was so hard and you feel like you've been through this whole thing on your own and you haven't like everyone's been through the same the same experience mm -hmm. so listening to sarah and nicole talk i'm it's so therapeutic it makes mm -hmm. me feel so amazing so so i don't i don't often feel like a doctor yeah um, and then a lot of your colleagues um are dyslexic do you know anyone or does do people keep it under wraps I think we may have lost the connection with James. Okay. I'm going to come in there. I'm going to come in there because um, I've got a question for you guys, the audience, because I know the answer to this. So the, the Royal Society did a um, report recently on STEM. 
so science, technology, engineering, medicine, and they looked at students and academics. And they, the whole focus of the report was on disability. So obviously, they looked at numbers and percentage with SPLD. So obviously, that's dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD. So we reckon in the you know population that could be anywhere between you know say say at least fifteen percent of the population. At a, at a, a, so so how many academics so people that are lecturers and above are in stem do you think are having an spld hmm. what percent percentage 15 percent of the general population 10 percent I would say i'd say that the answer to that question is how many there's a difference between how many who are recognized and formally known and then how many who just have just but that but i would say it's lower than that it's a lower than 10 five yeah well for for um in academics is 0.9 percent wow yeah and for undergraduates which is more worrying because undergraduates now they tend to be most of them have been in school where they would have been identified um whether or not they disclosed but anyway 5.5 percent yeah. And you compare this. I noticed Krona's, um on the on, uh, in in the in the, here at the moment, but the Royal College of Art, twenty nine percent of their students. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that's the difference. And actually, another study that they did in the UK, and they look at GCSE, which is the exams you do at age sixteen, and they show that students that have, uh, say, dyslexia, but are not. Um, but are not um, don't have a statement. So in the UK, it's very hard to get a statement. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people that are unstatemented, probably like yourself, James. Maybe I don't know. Um, when they're sixteen, those students do significantly worse by a long shot in terms of STEM. And this gets to the point because yeah. it's the way we are assessing, teaching, and assessing our students, which is the problem. And this is why. You know, we are going to have a problem. You know, the businesses want this, um, want sort of neurodiverse uh, scientists because they want that sort of complicated, non-linear thinking and innovation. But we're not bringing enough of them into university. So that is something I think really has to be addressed. Do you think there are a lot of stealth dyslexics then? You know, the ones that are, are maybe mildly and have, have got so many good coping strategies. I mean, we always talk about, you know, there is a, a big range. And Nicole, you'll be able to say exactly how many things. I think it's in, is it 30 or 40 different things that you could have as a dyslexic? But you could have a couple of them or you could have, you know, loads of them. Mm -hmm. Which means that your experience is obviously very different, but it's still your way of thinking isn't it 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 is and you know along the lines of, of what you're saying sarah i think the importance of empowering people with learning differences the way we're doing now is that we disrupt these long-standing models of what is normal what ability means and how we measure it so that they can move on with their lives you know we start to see that dyslexia goes beyond reading and learning and it's just a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's the flip side, you know, the same issues that cause difficulty reading allow for a wider worldview or the creativity to happen. But as we encourage people to become more successful and empower them, we the world has to wake up and say, wait a minute, why did that person have so much trouble getting into college? What what was the issue here? So I think we, this is what we're doing. We're disrupting these long-standing models of how we define what is typical and how we assess that and how we give people opportunity to be um, the best person they can be in society. Yeah, so I run a, a master's in genes, drugs, and stem cells, which just rolls off the tongue. And in the context of that master's, I've tried to make it more accessible for these students because I also run um, STEM uh, workshops specifically for dyslexic students in their sort of teens. And so when we bring them in, we teach them 
in a very sort of hands-on way we get them you, you know there are a lot of things we do we bring in entrepreneurship into it which is hilarious we did a, a bridge building study where we gave them they had to um build a bridge with bits of plywood and and glue and glue guns and they had money to buy all these things they were working in groups and i'm going to keep it very short but essentially one of these groups decided at the beginning the way to win was to buy all the glue guns so forget the trigonometry and working out how to build the breast bridge they bought all the glue guns had them on it and they got the most money at the end and they stuck the money all over themselves they were dead pleased and it was just so brilliant to see that these dyslexics had you know picked up on that entrepreneurial opportunity mm -hmm. and yeah so that's what i love to do is bringing them in and showing them their strengths and then talking to them we have all you know me as a dyslexic professor and all the people teaching them that are dyslexic scientists and we say yeah you can be successful like us but you might have a slightly different route and don't let people tell you that you're not good because you know you haven't got a great memory or whatever um because you've got these other skills and we'll do things that are you know to bring out their creativity etc etc so yeah Yes, Amazing. I, I love that you guys are all kind of talking about bringing the whole person in, you know, and, and so much the dyslexia, you know, we always see that and then we emphasize it and critique it and judge it. And the person has this sort of part of the personality that is, you know, challenge. And then but there is such a range of, 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 of languages, as Jane was saying earlier. Uh, Nicole, tell me more about this whole idea of the whole person and how you embrace that. Um, any sort of thoughts or pointers or guidance for the audience out there to be able to sort of be able to kind of integrate their whole person and bring their best foot forward? Yeah, I think it's very important for parents and peers to help individuals recognize that they're more than their report card, right? They're more than what their school marks are because that's how most children, as they're growing up, define their identity and define their potential. And the more we can help them to really, to unpack that and understand that they are more than what's on that sheet of paper and to help them to articulate their strengths, the better a person will be. And as they get older, late high school, early college, young adulthood, to really have someone help them to understand why is it that my brain does these things? What is working memory? What is processing speed? How did I encode information? And what is the flip side? What does science say about the flip side of dyslexia? It's allowing me to do all these amazing things. When I look around, I can do better than other people, but I certainly didn't get graded for those things. So I think the more we can just have a really, really simple unpacked conversation about the reality of the whole dyslexic experience from the lived experience to what's happening in the brain, the more we empower people to have a sense of belonging and community. Because one thing I know is that many dyslexics feel isolated because in the early years without this knowledge, they feel that they don't fit in because they know they're bright, but they're not, they're not measuring up apparent many academically to their peers. So the more we can really help them to see why that is and what that means, and it's okay, and that the world is catching up to it, the better that they can be, and, and the better that they can embrace their strengths and not be ashamed and not give a darn about what your report card said. I mean, even Charles Schwab came to talk. I mean, Charles Schwab, Stanford dyslexic, obviously brilliant businessman, um, graduated from Stanford and he came back to talk to Stanford students and he says, I'm gonna tell you something. I never asked anybody what their grades were on their report card. I wanna know how you think. Mm -hmm. And that empowered so many of the students that we see. Yeah. Can I can I can I add one can I add one comment to that? Sorry, I didn't hear that, but I just want to add one comment to that, which is that I believe dyslexics have more fun. Yes. Right. Right. I would genuinely like. I think we have more fun, and I sit on interview panels for for kids for kids coming into universities, coming into med school, right? 
and I, I have a bunch of students that come and they're my PhD students and they come to Imperial College. And these are the brightest, most academic, the sharpest young people that we have in this country and internationally. And I look at their CVs and I'm intimidated because they've achieved these incredible things, right? They are unbelievable people that did things that I could never have done when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. But none of them know how to have fun. And, and I spend most of my time trying to teach them the import, all of my dyslexic skill set and trying to explain why that's more important to them in some aspects of their career than the traditional skill set that they've been left with. If as a human, if you cannot, if you don't understand what it is to really live, it's very difficult to be a really effective doctor because you can't understand the experience of the people that you're trying to treat. If you don't relax and have fun, your brain doesn't have time to process the really important things that you're thinking about in your scientific career uh, in whatever, whatever aspect of life it is. And I think it comes back down to what, um, you know, I think Sarah said before, it's about dyslexics have this amazing ability to have a big picture, right? They, they, they can see the bigger, the bigger goal, where we're all going. And, and, and I just think that actually, it's not just about teaching dyslexic kids that they're okay, and that they can be all right. It, it's actually about teaching what I'm going to call conventional kids, who are particularly, you know, standard, uh, that actually, they can learn so much from us if we can just find a way to communicate and to talk. Mm, yeah, lovely. Absolutely. You know, sometimes, and it's interesting, I mean, we're talking about science, we're talking about research, creativity, and then you throw the, the idea of having a good time and playing and laughing, and it almost seems like, you know, at least in the U.S., often that sort of doesn't have the same weight or value. But exactly to your point, yeah. James, is that I find in all the work we do is that when we relax, when we play, we're actually a lot more innovative, more creative. We create more room for ourselves to do as Sarah was saying, to fail and to evolve from it and to learn from it. But then often we even get to the results quicker because our brain just sort of yeah. relaxes and finds new ways to get to, to, to the answers, yeah? And, and, just, and just one very, very quick follow-up on that. I, I run a, I, I co-direct a course in Imperial, which is a health design course. And what we do is we take, we take designers, industrial designers from the Royal College of Art, and we mix them with scientists and medics. And the idea is to understand the value of design in healthcare, how you can use design to, to improve, improve health. And it's fascinating. Like, Nicole, we should go and do some study here because you see these two cultures completely collide and, mm -hmm. and clinicians can't get their head around it. It takes them a long time to get their head mm -hmm. around how designers think. And equally, designers are kind of overwhelmed by the scientific process. And when we started, we would run these workshops, which were in entirely creative. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I thought, well, I, you know, I just I couldn't see it working. And now it's the most fun thing that I do. I just love it because every time you put these two amazing groups of people together, they come up with amazing ideas, just amazing ideas that are really, really transformational. So, so I, I kind of buy into everything that all of the other guys have said on this call today, that I think, um, uh, you know, that there is so much to learn if we can just find a way to, to communicate with each other. I think one of the most important messages in our book was about collaboration. It's when you've got like two people of, of, of opposite yeah, skills and talents, but when you bring them together, that's when the magic starts to happen. Yes. yes. And it's more fun. Well, you guys, we're just about up uh, top of the hour here. So I wanted to sort of ask you one last question and we can go around and sort of, what would you say to a young dyslexic student who is interested in studying science and, 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 and having some uh, uh, challenges or struggles or, or, or fears in order to get into the field? Any, any sort of final remarks and thoughts that we can leave them with? Nicole, you want to start? Sure. I would say always be gentle with yourself. Always be gentle with yourself, number one. Um, use technology to en enable the copious amounts of reading that you have to get through, but learn comprehension strategies and, and um, test-taking strategies as well. And never give up, never give up. It just takes perseverance. There's absolutely no reason why it can't happen. Yeah. James, final thoughts? I, I would say, come on in. The water's lovely. 
like we need more of you. Uh, and I would say that, um, you know, I would really echo everything that Nicola said, but I think um, you, I would invest time trying to understand how your brain works and don't worry if it's different. And don't worry if your method to get to the answer is different. It's as long as you get to the right answer, that's all that really matters. And, um, you know, I think I, I also, do you know what? I wish I had enjoyed it more. I spent so much time fighting it that I never really was in the moment to enjoy the act of learning. Learning, if you can find a way to, to, to get your brain to do what you need it to do, is so fun. It's the most enjoyable thing that we do. My favorite thing in my life is sitting in a lecture, lecture hall, listening to someone who really knows what they're talking about, tell me something that I've got, that I didn't know anything about. I absolutely love it now. It's my favorite thing to do. And if you can understand that learning is fun, there is nothing you can't do. There's nothing you can't do. You can do anything. So I think for me, that's, that's, that's the most important thing. Never, ever, ever um, be too embarrassed to ask a question. Always ask the question, because if you think that, it, this, the answer is unclear. I can guarantee you there's someone else in the class next to you also doesn't understand. And it's never ever a stupid question. So always ask the question, no matter how stupid you think it is, try and understand how your brain works and, and ha try and have fun learning. Because if you can do that, really you're capable of anything. Mm. One thing you were saying that I think really resonates with me is uh, feed your dyslexia. So as you learn what yeah. is your dyslexia and you learn curiosity and you know that your brain's leap and wants to find more, instead of staying away from it and finding a way to feed it, um, you just, if nothing else, you get more relationship with yourself and understand the way your brain works. So well well said. Um, uh, Sarah, what's some of your sort of uh, last thoughts and pointers for somebody that may want to get into the science? Sciences? Okay, so if I'm showing this, huh? this is um, achievement over time, yeah, years. And this is what James would refer to as your conventional person. Uh -huh. And then I would say, you know, this potentially, this is what we're looking, in terms of science, this is what we're looking at your dyslexic person. So mm -hmm. there can be failure, there can be bumps, and it's not until you go out here, which is past your PhD stage, when mm -hmm. you start leading your own group, being able to follow your own sort of thoughts and ideas, that's the stage where you suddenly will take off and you're going to leave all those conventional people behind. Fantastic. All sense. Beautiful. Well, you guys, this has been, I'm sure we can talk for hours and hours more. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I really appreciate all your time and thoughts and uh, wisdom and guidance and uh, um, thank you very much for being part of this amazing uh, salon and more, uh, amazing dyslexia global dyslexia community i uh as, as james said earlier, every time we do this every time i i just learn more about how the dyslexia whole person is not just one parts of it and uh it's so empowering so thank you very much really really appreciate it there are so many of us mm. yeah and thank yeah. you guys and thank you gil for the work that you're doing thanks take cap you guys are just amazing keep doing it like it makes a huge difference and uh, I just think it's fabulous the work that you guys do. Yes, thank you to all Thanks of you. Thank you to our guests. I hope you enjoy this episode of Dyslexic Design Thinking. We have a lot more great content coming, so make sure to like and subscribe. Dyslexic Design Thinking is produced by Gershoni Creative, created in partnership with Amazing Dyslexics.